for letting us stand. You don't mind? All right. I don't, so especially in these pews. That's a whole other story. Anyways, it's a joy to be together tonight. Thank you for the grace you showed to Calvin through the last nine months. Um, I routinely heard out of his mouth how thankful he was for our church family and how much of an encouragement you were to him. Uh, that was not just a statement he made at the end. He said to me often how, um, how encouraging you were and how intentional you were to be a blessing to him as he was pursuing what the Lord would have. Paul, in his letters to Timothy, makes clear to him that one of his main tasks is to, in faithfulness to the task of being a servant of the word, he is to pass on what he knows to other faithful men so that they might do the same thing. So it ought to be the mark of the church, and particularly of the leadership of the church, the, the shepherds, to be faithfully passing on what God's entrusted to them to other faithful men. Um, so may what we had the privilege to do with Calvin be uh, a continual thing, and, and may that just be uh, one of the most obvious ones. May that happen in multitudes of ways. Uh, may that happen over the coffee table as we share coffee with one another as men, uh, as leaders passing on the truth that God has taught us to those entrusted to our care. I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1 as we continue our series, our summer sermon series as an encouragement to you, we've entitled the series Strengthening Your Serve, speaking not about your volleyball or pickleball serve, but your service to the Lord. I laid out for you a few weeks ago the logic of this series and expressed to you from Scripture that God has called us to be servants, enslaved by His grace, and has called us to be faithful and thriving in that service and has given us the privilege to grow, to be ever increasing in our effectiveness as servants. And that is uh, an overwhelming and encouraging thought, that you can, you can do better in your love for the Lord and in your expression of that love in service to others. And so as we steward our time, our talents, and our possessions, even our very own lives, under the grace of Christ, we do that for the service of Christ our King in His church, which means then that we seek to improve. And so this sermon series is designed to encourage you and to exhort you, to equip you to be better servants uh, of our Lord. And our logic is to look at faithful servants who were well used, who were a blessing to the church, uh, both in Old Testament, New Testament, and then all through church history. Uh, what stands out about these faithful servants that we can learn from? So we start tonight with a Little-known man in 2 Timothy 1, Onesiphorus. 2 Timothy 1, verse 15, we'll read verses 15 through 18. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege to open your word. Thank you for allowing us to have it in our tongue and to be able to read and study and comprehend and be transformed by your truth. Thank you for the relative peace of 
even our own society and our own cultural moment to be able to meet publicly, openly, without fear of, of any reprisal or uh, anyone coming against us. Thank you for the, the freedom we've had enjoyed for the ministry of the gospel in this land. And thank you, Father, for the privilege now to study and think deeply on this text. And we pray that you would use this brother's example to encourage us to be better servants for your glory. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. To kind of get your bearings on the letter of Paul to Timothy, this is his second letter. He writes from a prison cell in Rome. It's his second Roman imprisonment. In his first Roman imprisonment, it, it seemed relatively okay. Um, it was, it was a, a shorter and less difficult season. This one is much more difficult, as is evidenced in his letter to Timothy. This is the last letter he'll write. He knows this imprisonment's going to lead to his death. He knows this is the end of him. There is no way getting out of his own soon coming execution. He knows that could happen at any moment. And so he writes a letter to his protege in the faith, his son in the Lord, Timothy, his maybe most beloved disciple, the one that he seems to have the most affection for, or at least that he expresses that affection for in the scriptures. Paul is alone in Rome, except for Luke. He says in chapter 4, Luke alone is with me. Several men have departed from him. Demas, in love with the present world, had left from him in chapter 4. Several had been sent off into ministry in other places. Timothy himself was off in ministry in another place. He had been left in Ephesus, which if you know much about Ephesus, it's uh, it's in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It's uh, the the chief of churches in Asia, uh, almost the chief of churches outside of Jerusalem in Paul's day. It is a uh, stalwart church. It is a bastion for the truth. Uh, It is profound in its ministry of of love and service to the Lord. This is why when Jesus addresses the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, he has large commendations for them, how they've stood for the truth. You read that description, you say, I want to be a part of that church. You remember, as he addresses them, his one complaint was that you have left your first love. I have this against you. You've left your first love, uh, Jesus says through John at the end of the first century to that church. But in the 60s, late 60s, when Paul writes this letter, Timothy is pastoring that church and raising up the body of Christ in the nature of faith and truth and standing for the truth. He longs for Timothy to not abandon the gospel nor to abandon Paul like so many have. And apparently this is a real danger for Timothy as he faces ministry and the challenges of ministry in Ephesus, pastoring that very influential church. Apparently something has happened among the brothers in Asia, and particularly the leaders in the churches in Asia, to where they have distanced themselves from Paul. And you get the the point as you read this letter that this is not a, a minor falling out of personalities, that this is a bigger issue, that these men have in abandoning Paul and not willing to bear the shame of the gospel, have themselves fallen away, at least in part, from the gospel, if not in its truth, at least in its cost. And that's a real problem for Paul. And so he writes, as it should be, he writes to Timothy, and he says to Timothy, don't be like them. And so he says to him right away in verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. You remember what he does in the first seven verses, he encourages Timothy about his faith. I know your faith. I I know the faith of your mother and your grandmother. It's solid. Praise God for it. 
And now he says to him in verse 8, do not be ashamed of me or of my message of the gospel of Christ, nor of me, his prisoner, he goes on to say, but instead of being ashamed in verse 8, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So the alternative to being ashamed of the gospel is to suffer for the gospel. This is the real uh, point of decision that lay before Timothy and before all the brothers in Asia Minor. And something had happened as he goes on to say in verse 15, but I get ahead of myself. In verse, uh, let's see, where is it? Verse 10, uh, verse 8, he says, do not be ashamed. Then verse 10, he says that he has not been ashamed, not 10, verse 12. But I am not ashamed, he says, for I know whom I have believed, Paul says, for I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul says, I have not been ashamed, but I have not been ashamed not because I'm such a great servant or because I'm so strong in myself. I'm, I have not been ashamed because I know whom I have believed. Not what I have believed, but whom I have believed. And I know that this whom, this Jesus, is able to keep that which he has entrusted to me until that day. In other words, the success of the gospel, the ministry of the gospel, taking it to the Gentiles of the world that was given to Paul by Jesus, is not safe in Paul's hands, it's safe in Jesus' hands. He says, I know whom I have believed, and I am confident he will finish that work that he has given to me. Therefore, I am not ashamed. So he says to Timothy, you better not be ashamed, and I am not ashamed. And then he contrasts that in verse 15 with those who have been ashamed of Paul. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. By the all who are in Asia, he does not mean every believer who lives in Asia. Because he's writing to one, Timothy, who is in Asia. He doesn't mean everyone. He means all, some, in some category that Timothy understands, presumably all who are in the local churches in leadership. Paul has fallen on hard knocks within the church. In some way, they have turned from him and distanced themselves from him. And he names two men who have presumably been the tip of the spear. They, they've led the charge. They've, they've been the first ones to turn and run. They have their names on the movement. They're in the school of shame. And Paul wants everyone to know their names and says, don't be like them. Don't be like Figulus and Hermogenes. Figulus means fugitive in the Greek text. Therefore, he is a fugitive of the gospel. He's turned from Christ and from the truth. This turning is an aorist passive verb. It's likely speaking about an event in the recent past between Paul and these men in which they had abandoned him. They had turned from him and refused to bear his shame. In the context, it seems really clear that that shame is the shame of his bonds. And these aren't figurative bonds, figurative chains. These are actual chains to which he is chained to the wall in a Roman prison cell. And they see in Paul the outcome of his type of ministry. And maybe they've even distanced themselves in thinking, you know, if we're faithful to the gospel, we don't have to look like Paul. You know, there's easier ways to do this. You, you don't have to poke the bear all the time. You don't have to poke him in the eye and get put in prison. There's a different way. Maybe they distance themselves in some way like that. We don't know. But Timothy knew. Timothy knew what these two men were saying. He knew what they had abandoned Paul over. And Paul says to them, don't be like them. And then he contrasts those unfaithful servants with this fellow faithful brother, Onesiphorus. 
what sticks out to me about this text and about this man is how refreshing he was to Paul. How he blew this breeze of cool air into the hot fires of affliction for Paul. It's the courage of Onesiphorus that makes him persist in ministry to Paul, and he's then this great blessing to Paul. I want to be that kind of guy. I want to be a guy that isn't going to have too many people know about me, but who can be a refreshing blessing in my service to the Lord. This is so true of so many of you. Your names, in my estimation, could be included in this text. You're zealous for the work of the ministry. You're sincere in your extensions of mercy, and you refresh the brethren. You blow cool air into the fires of their affliction through your ministry to them. So what can we learn from Onesiphorus and his service to Paul? How can we be encouraged in our own service? Well, the first idea is that faithful servants are earnestly courageous. They're earnestly courageous. We see that right away in verses 16 and 17. This faithful servant, Onesiphorus, was earnest and courageous. Everyone else was abandoning Paul It would cost them too much to be associated with Paul. And here is a man seeking Paul, running after Paul, earnestly desiring to be near Paul. Everyone else is running away. Onesiphorus is running too. Others are fleeing the potential shame of being known as a servant of Christ and an associate of Paul. This man is seeking for Paul in the city of his execution. In the city where there is no greater shame in any other city in the Roman Empire than in Rome. The name of Paul is anathema on the streets of Rome. And here is Onesiphorus asking, do you know where Paul, the apostle, is kept? Seeking to be a blessing to his brother. We know that Onesiphorus is from Ephesus in Asia Minor because in chapter 4, Paul will say to Timothy at the end of the letter, greet the household of Onesiphorus. In other words, Onesiphorus isn't home yet. Paul sends a letter and he wants Timothy to make the point to greet his family for him and to to bless them in the name of Paul for the sacrifice they've made in sending their husband and their father, their loved one, to minister to Paul. So what does Onesiphorus do? Apparently he came to Rome when he heard about Paul's plight. Now the other ones in Asia ran from Paul when they heard about his plight, even if it was just in words, in verbiage, and how they talked about Paul and his ministry. They distanced themselves from Paul. They were ashamed of Paul. They abandoned Paul. Here is this relatively unknown man, this servant in the church, who hears of Paul's plight and runs to Paul, sacrifices time and money and treasure to go be a servant to Paul in his affliction and in his bonds, in his chains. Paul says that when he arrived in Rome, he searched earnestly for Paul and found him. That word earnestly is found in Titus 3 and verse 13 where it's translated, do your best. It's a command there saying, do your best. That's the idea of what Onesiphorus does to find Paul. He didn't travel all the way from Ephesus to ask a few people, say, oh, bummer, I can't find him, turn around and go home. He traveled so that he could find Paul and he wasn't going to stop until he found him. Everyone he saw, every conversation he could have, you'd say, hey, do you happen to know where Paul is? Can I remind you who's ruling on the throne in Rome when this is happening? Our beloved friend Nero, who has burned Rome and blamed it on the Christians, 
who has used Christians as lampstands to light the Roman roadways, burning them at the stake along the pathway so people can see, presumably, as they walk in and out of the city. This man hates Christ. He hates people who have fidelity and loyalty to anyone but himself. He hates people who will not say, Kaiser is Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. He hates people who will refuse to bow the knee to his authority. And Paul is chief among those whom he hates. Because Paul will bow the knee to no one but Jesus of Nazareth. And he has turned the world upside down with his gospel of this Jesus. And now into that environment, because Onesiphorus knows that Paul is hurting in a Roman jail cell in need of mercy He comes into that environment and does his dead level best to find this man so that he can bless this man and serve this man. Can I ask you, what is in this for Onesiphorus? What is in this for him? Absolutely nothing this side of heaven. There's shame involved. There's potential death involved. There's imprisonment likely involved. Nothing positive is in this for our brother. And yet he sought out Paul, seeking him so that he might serve him. Onesiphorus was welcoming of Paul's baggage and Paul's trouble, bringing that into his own life, risking his very own existence, risking being shunned in society and in the church at large because of his close connection to the apostle Paul. Everyone of that day would say, don't bother with Paul, you'll be on the wrong side of history. The Holy Spirit would say, no, Onesiphorus, you are on the right side of history. Rushing toward the Lord's servant in his hour of deepest and darkest need. We also know that this is part of the deal for following Christ, don't we? This is the application to our own hearts. This is what Jesus has made so clear to us in his Gospels, as he says in In Luke 14, calling us to count the cost of our discipleship, of our following Christ. It'll it'll cost us our very selves, our very lives. He says to the disciples in John 15, in the upper room discourse, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world Hates you. Why is the church so bent today on having the world like them? Why do servants, so-called servants of Christ, make it their aim to have the applause of unregenerate men in social media circles? If we are truly of Christ, then we are not of the world, and we will be hated by the world. We don't need to try to be hated by the world. We don't need to make it our our banner to say, you're going to hate me. And I'm going to give you 10 reasons. They'll have plenty of reason just because you're in Christ. And you're faithful to the truth. And you're committed to sound doctrine. And you boldly declare without shame the good news of Christ. And so Jesus says to his disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's why Paul will say in Philippians 3 as he rehearses all that he has left behind all of his religious accomplishments of his prior life, he has counted it all as dung. It is meaningless and worthless 
compared to the grace of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And so he says now his aim in Philippians 3.10 is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And we'd like to stop there. Amen, I'm with you. Know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Glory, hallelujah. And to share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. That means for Paul, if it means sitting in a Roman jail cell by myself, chained to a wall, waiting my execution with everyone abandoning me, if that's what it takes to know the resurrection of eternal life in Jesus Christ my Lord, sign me up. And Onesiphorus says, I'm with Paul. Sign me up too. I will suffer with my brother Paul is clear in this letter to Timothy, his last communication inspired by the Spirit, that either you're going to be ashamed or you're going to suffer. You're either going to stand with Christ and suffer or you're going to be ashamed of the gospel and thrive in this life and suffer in the next. Sharing in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God, he says to Timothy, do it that way. And then he says, do it like Onesiphorus. Be so captivated by the gospel of grace that you are willing to suffer any loss and any harm and any shame to be a servant of the Lord and of the Lord's servants. Faithful servants are earnestly courageous. They run to the flame, not away from it. Faithful servants are also refreshing. That's in verse 16. These types of servants who are earnestly courageous are by their nature, refreshing. They, they breathe life into the church. They bless other servants. They encourage other followers of Christ. That earnest courage of Onesiphorus, Paul says, was often refreshing to me. This word for refreshing is a, a combination of, of two Greek words, the, the preposition for again and a Greek word for making cold or extinguishing a flame. So you're again making something cool that has been heated up. You're putting out a fire that had been put out but flared back up. You're, you're refreshing a situation that is difficult and hard. You're blowing upon another person's life in a way that turns down the heat of difficulty and discouragement and loneliness and frustration and shame. Paul is... Alone, And it's obvious as you read the letter, he's discouraged. He's convinced that the Lord will keep him, but he hopes he can make it till that end. He, he finally, as I read this morning, he ends the letter by saying, I, I know even all these people who come against me, they'll not ultimately win. Ultimately, Christ will win, and he knows that will be through his death. That's a discouraging, disheartening reality to face. And in his discouragement, as everyone else runs away, here comes this faithful servant, Onesiphorus, charging through the streets of Rome. Where is Paul? And he finds him and enters into the room. And I mean, can you just imagine the scene? Some dark, dingy dungeon cell, chained to a wall, having rats eat at your feet having hardly any food or water, a little bit of company with Luke when he can make it into your cell. And here through the door comes your old friend from Ephesus, 
this faithful servant whom he will say in verse 18 to Timothy, you know his service well. In other words, this is how he always is. This is just who he is. He's just a faithful servant of others. Can you imagine the delight of Paul, the refreshment and encouragement that that brought to our brother in his trial to see Onesiphorus walk through that door? Certainly he brought with him physical refreshment, food and water and other things that were a blessing to Paul. Maybe even brought him some letters from the church in Ephesus that were an encouragement to him. But it was, it was the spiritual refreshment that Paul is specifically defining here. In the immediate context, you have these two men who have abandoned Paul. And Paul needs to know that they're not representative of everyone in Asia. He, he's not sure. He's not in Asia. He's in a Roman jail cell. He doesn't know. I mean, has everybody turned against me? No. Onesiphorus made his way from Ephesus to encourage me and let me know he's on my side. He's not ashamed of my chains. In fact, that's what Paul says in verse 16, that he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. This is how faithful servants in the body of Christ are. They're like a cool breeze in a dry and weary land. They're an oasis in a desert. They're, they're a stiff wind at your back as you walk the pilgrimage of following Christ. They're earnest to serve and they come alongside you, put their arm around you and help you take the next step. They're courageous with the gospel and they infuse in you the courage to continue facing the battle before you. They see a need and they take the time to minister to those who have the need. They are refreshing. So where can you increase in your refreshment? Before I say that, let me say, who do you know that is this to you? Thank God for them. That's a gift of God's grace to you. Praise God for their impact and influence on you that, that through them, God has blown wind into your sails and blessed you to keep going on for him, to keep being Full of courage. That word encourage means to put courage in someone else. That, that's what Paul says this man has done to me. He's given me courage to face the affliction and the trial and the trouble ahead of me. And then where can you improve in this way? How can you run into the flame of other people's trouble and trial and sorrow and difficulty? Particularly those which are connected to the gospel. Those trials that if they would just cave on truth, it would be over. They, they would have an easy life now, their best life now, dare I say. Where can you enter into their life, pursuing them and bust through the door of their dungeon cell and refresh them and bless them and serve them? I think specifically of some of our missionaries you most certainly keep up with some of their letters. Who of them, in their trial for the gospel, in their giving of themselves to take the message of Christ to a foreign place, a hard and difficult land, wherever that is, and they write in their newsletter ways that they want you to know they're struggling, that they want you to know it's hard for them, those are, those are hard things to write. It's hard for them to know what to say and how to say it. 
It's hard to know where's the line of too much information and not enough information so that you know how to pray and carry them through as the body of Christ. I think of, of our missionaries in Uganda, James and Lindsay, who in their last missions prayer letter expressed how deeply suffering, how, how much deep suffering they have been through in the last six months. It was overwhelming to me. I was like, I, if that's me, I'm out. I mean, I just, I'm a lesser man than my brother James. I am out of there. And he just fervently continues to pursue the Lord, and it is costing him greatly for the sake of the God. He's just one example of many. So can I encourage you, how can you be refreshing? How can you be an Onesiphorus to him or to any of our missionaries? How can you enter into their dungeon of trial and breathe a wind of encouragement into their soul and refresh them often? Lastly, faithful servants show mercy and are given mercy. Faithful servants show mercy and are given mercy. Paul was refreshed by Onesiphorus because he sought to find Paul, not so that he could just chew the fat with Paul and catch up and be old buds. No, he pursued Paul so that he could show mercy to Paul, meaning to be a blessing to Paul, to bear some of the burden with Paul. Paul didn't deserve that. Paul had not earned that. You could say maybe he earned that through his apostolic service in the church. And, you know, he, if anyone deserved this treatment by Onesiphorus, it was Paul. Paul says, I don't deserve that. It was mercy. He showed me mercy. And having shown me mercy, may he be given mercy. That's what he says in verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. And then verse 18, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. The logic of Paul's writing here is that this man who showed me so much mercy that I did not deserve, may God fulfill his beatitude spoken by the mouth of his son in Matthew 5. May those who are merciful be shown mercy. That's his desire here for Onesiphorus, that he, a merciful servant, would be given mercy by God. Did you notice in verse 16 when he asked for the mercy on Onesiphorus, he asked for it on the household of Onesiphorus. As I mentioned in 419, he asked Timothy to greet the household of Onesiphorus. This shows us that that this is a, a company deal. This is a family project. That Onesiphorus is just the tip of the spear and the family, the household, is the shaft. They've launched him into this ministry of mercy. They've supported him in his efforts. They've sacrificed for him. He has left from them to go do this. And Paul is aware that they are on board with this. And so he asks for God to give mercy to this family who has sent their beloved husband and their beloved father to come and show mercy to Paul. Because it's a family ordeal. They are all in this Together, that's encouraging to me. Not all of us are going to be the tip of the spear in service to the Lord. Not all of us are going to be front and center in doing these things. Not all of us are going to have our names in Scripture of doing something for the Apostle Paul. But behind Onesiphorus is a whole household. We know not even their number or their relationship to this brother. But Paul says he's there because of them. He came out of their support and their sacrifice 
gladly joining him in showing mercy. And then Paul says, may he who showed mercy be shown mercy by the Lord in verse 18, particularly on that final day. He has an eternal perspective to his view of this faithful service by Onesiphorus. Paul knows that there's no way he can pay Onesiphorus back for the mercy that he has been shown. And he knows that the Lord must, and he knows that the Lord probably won't do it in this life. That it will come on that final day. There's some speculation in the commentaries about what was going on with Onesiphorus. Was he in trouble? Is that why Paul says twice that may, may the Lord show mercy to them? Did he get arrested? Is he now in a Roman jail cell? Was he dead for the sake of the gospel? We, we don't know that. It's all speculation. The text stands either way, if he's alive and thriving and on his way back to Ephesus or if he's still there ministering to Paul. We have no idea what's happening here. But we know that on the last day, we'll all have those accounts settled and on that day, Onesiphorus will not be met with reward he has earned of his own accord. He will be met with reward dripping with mercy. An eternal life abounding in the joy of the Lord because he was a faithful servant. And he will enter into the joy of his master with an ability to relish the presence of God and great delight and all of it will be mercy from the Lord. He was merciful and Paul says, may God show him mercy. So beloved, may we be servants like Onesiphorus. May we be earnestly courageous, especially on issues of the truth relating to the gospel. May we hold the line firm and where we see others holding the line firm and coming under attack, let's go hold the rope with them. Let's enter into their trial and struggle and bless them and refresh them and encourage them. And let's be full of that refreshing, earnest giving of mercy to one another as servants of our Lord. May God help us to do that. Would you pray with me to that end? Father, we praise you for the mercy you have shown us in your son and we are confident that you want us now to walk in that mercy toward one another and towards outsiders who are not yet in Christ. We pray for your help to be merciful as we have known your mercy. And then, Lord, would you show us ways that we can, like Onesiphorus, run to the flame instead of away from it. Would you show us brothers and sisters in our own lives who are being scorched under the difficulties of affliction and trial and trouble? Would you compel us by the example of Onesiphorus and more than that, by the grace we know in Christ to enter in, to bear their burden with them, to rejoice that we can be in some way a refreshment to their soul? Lord, would you help us to do this in the days to come for your honor and your glory? Would you build your church would you fulfill your promise? Would you help us to be faithful? In Jesus' name, amen.